Hundreds of pounds of pasta have been found in a New Jersey stream. And that's not even the craziest thing that's happened this weekend. Today, specifically, we saw a huge stock rally despite the fact that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates. There's still a debate on the debt limit within Congress, and banks are collapsing all around us. You're not going to want to miss any of this information. Let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Wealthy Idiot Show. My name's AJ, and before we get into it, please make sure to like and subscribe. It helps us out tremendously. We don't ask anything else of you. Just a little tap of that like button. I'm going to switch up today's format just a little bit. We're going to start doing something where once a week we put out a full episode where we talk about the news, uh, that the uh, financial news that happened this week. We can do our reaction videos to our uh, video of the week, and we can cover other financial and personal financial topics, as well as bring in people like DC to come and talk to us about um, different topics that we might need to hear about. So, and then if you're not interested in seeing the entire episode, um, as it's probably going to be pretty long, uh, we're going to chunk up the little pieces and release them throughout the week so you can get the parts that you like the most. So to start off with, what is going on with pasta in New Jersey? This is more of a joke than anything else, but it looks like a whole bunch of dry pasta was left on the side of the road in a New, in a New Jersey stream, and that pasta became wet as a result of the rain and the weather. It's estimated to be about 500 pounds of pasta, and nobody knows where that pasta came from. But the craziest thing we saw this week was the uh, uptick in, in stocks. Yahoo, what Yahoo Finance is calling a stock rally. We're seeing jumps in various stocks, um, and it says, or, so they're, uh, they're reporting May 5th by Reuters, U.S. stocks gained on Feb, uh, Friday, lifted by strong results from Apple and rebounding shares of regional banks, while a stronger-than-expected jobs report eased worries of imminent economic downturn. So as a result, people think the economy is doing well or it's going to be doing better. And so they're starting to get back into the stock market, which is causing everything to lift up. We saw increases in Apple stock especially, but also the S&P 500 kind of floated by the idea that um, Apple specifically was able to break records in their iPhone sales, which people thought wasn't going to be the case in tech for a while. So seeing that rebound is really sparking a lot more interest in the stock market and tech companies specifically, and we're seeing that rebound increase dramatically. And that's in the face of the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates by 25 points once again. So the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates. Reported here by CNBC, the Federal Reserve rate was at 5%, now it's at 5.25%. So what that means for us is that the amount of money the banks can borrow from the Federal Reserve at a rate of 5.25% means that they have to increase their interest rates when lending that money to us. And as a result, we're seeing increases in mortgage costs, credit cards, any kind of loan that you can think of is starting to is increasing at a pretty rapid rate and people are starting to feel that. The Federal Reserve made the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jerome Powell made no real indication that this was going to slow down anytime soon. We've talked on this channel several times about the fact that the Federal Reserve keeps raising interest rates and they keep saying, we're going to do this until we see some kind of economic pain. And they raised interest rates and the jobs report looks good and the stock market rallied. We're not really seeing that economic pain that Jerome Powell is talking about. He said here, it will take some time. And in that world, if that forecast is broadly right, 
it would not be appropriate to cut rates and we won't cut rates, he said. So interest rates tend to rise or the the Federal Reserve meets every six weeks to discuss raising the interest rates. And so we see these increases every once in a while, every six weeks or so, some kind of portion uh, or some little bit of raise at a time. And we've seen that since like May of 2022. So it's been almost an entire year now of slow uh, creeping interest rate increases. And what the Federal Reserve is hoping to see is a tightening down in the economy. Right now, there's way too much cash floating around, and by raising interest rates, the hope is that we can reduce the amount of cash by making cash more expensive, essentially. And to this point, we haven't really seen anything to indicate that this is working so far, and until we see some sort of indication that this works, these interest rates will continue to rise. People are speculating that at some point we'll hit a recession. Hopefully, it's a soft recession and not a huge one like we predicted early on, but if it's a soft recession, we should see interest rates start to tick back down. Um, Right now, the experts, and I put that in air quotes because... We just don't know um, because they haven't been right you know, in large amounts so far are saying that we should see that sometime in September, which means we should see rates start to drop sometime next winter. Hopefully that's true. But what we do know is that the First Republic Bank collapsed earlier this week and JP Morgan Chase was sort of helped out by the government to purchase it in order to kind of contain the damage caused by this collapse. This is a huge bank collapse following the collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank's earlier in March, and this is actually the biggest bank to have failed to this point. What's happening is that banks are not particularly solvent. They take the cash and they put it in things where it's difficult to get the cash out, and one of the things they put it into is long-term bonds. Now, bonds, when kept to their finishing date, will pay out a percentage rate that's really consistent because it comes from the United States government. So the argument is, well, the government could just print money if it needed to, and we don't have to really worry about those bonds. The problem is, now that interest rates are going up, you can't sell a bond to somebody else in order to try and get a discount if other bonds are being offered at a much higher rate. So the example would be, if I bought a bond for about 2% return, and then bonds came out with a 5% return, why would you buy my bond from me even at a lower rate, like 1.5% or 1%, and I take the hit on that, if you can just go out and get a bond at like 4 or 5%? And the answer is you wouldn't. And so banks are not able to move these bonds in order to become solvent, and as a result, they're putting themselves in a really risky situation. When the customers of those banks start to notice that something's wrong, and they're seeing issues with these banks in terms of stock prices. So like we saw the First Republic Bank stock price start to collapse. We're now seeing uh, PacWest Bancorp Bank starting to plunge and people get nervous and they go start withdrawing their money. Well, at a certain point, the bank no longer has cash in order to give to people and has to start telling people we don't have any we don't have any cash to give you. And then that's when the stocks really plunge as we're seeing poor management in the banks overall. And I don't personally think that we're at the end of this. I think we have more banks to collapse before this is all over. And I think part of it is the fact that the rising interest rates is making it hard for banks to predict what's happening in the future. Then to top that all off, we just talked about how safe it was to buy bonds because the United States government backs them up because they could just print unlimited amounts of money, except for that they can't. It turns out that there's a debt limit and Congress is not able to spend above this debt limit until they get back together in order to raise the debt limit. 
So every couple of years, every year, depending on what that debt limit looks like, they get together to decide, huh, this debt limit's got to be a little bit higher. And it's been done 78 times to this point, almost kind of making you wonder why the debt limit exists at all. If we're just going to continue to raise it. And if the debt limit isn't raised, the people who are going to feel it the most are probably the people who aren't going to be collecting their paychecks, like Social Security, Medicare, military salaries, you know, even interest on the debt. Although I don't actually believe that one. I think that if it came down to it, the government would have to pay the interest on the debt using actual tax revenue. But they're making the claim that we will default and that will destroy the credibility of the United States if we don't actually raise this debt limit. And at some point, I feel like we got to get to the... Uh, the equilibrium of maybe not spending too much. Maybe uh, the people in Congress need to start watching the Wealthy Idiot Show so that they understand how to save, not take out debt, and to be able to invest over the long term. Maybe start sending them videos. <laughs> Another big news report was that the U.S. labor market booms in April, adding 253,000 jobs. So despite the fact that we keep raising interest rates and we're hoping to see some sort of recession, jobs keep getting created, which is outstanding, except that that's not really our goal. So what is happening here? Well, the unemployment rate is at a pretty much all-time low of 3.4%. I mean, it says here a historically low level. It's pretty close to the lowest level it's ever been. But if you kind of zoom out a little bit, you can see that that's not the full picture. It even points out in this article, without really going into detail, that the labor force participation rate, or the share of workers employed or looking for work, is held at 62.6%. So that would make you wonder, what was the labor participation rate before? Because as it turns out, when we're calculating um, unemployment rate, we're not including people who have just stopped looking for jobs altogether. So if Billy decides he's done working, he's going to live in his mom's basement and play video games, that person is no longer counted. Well, how many of those people do we not count? Hopping over to the uh, economic research, the St. Louis Fed, this Federal Reserve, um, we could see that before the pandemic, we were at about 63.3% in labor participation. And although it's been climbing since the, uh, the pandemic, we're at about 626 now, that doesn't seem like a significant difference. It's a difference of about 0.7%, so not even one whole percent. But when you take in the overpopulation, or when you consider the overall population of the United States, that number comes out to be about 2.5 million people have just decided to quit working. So we added 250,000 new jobs, which is outstanding, but 2.5 working people are no longer working, making it look a little worse in the overall picture than what they're trying to uh, portray here for us. This may or may not be good news, as the Federal Reserve is looking for some information to indicate that their restrictions are kind of holding something down. Um, if the unemployment rate is low, but the market participation rate is still low, maybe that indicates that our economy isn't bouncing back as, as fast as we expected it to, which might mean that they'll stop increasing interest rates at some point, but only time will tell. So thank you for tuning in to the news portion. Uh, we'll continue to cover news every week and tell you about what's going on in personal finance that impacts you and us so that we are prepared and make the best decisions possible. The next segment of the show is going to be reacting to the video of the week.
So every week I'm going to find a, and I've been doing this, although I haven't really called it a reaction video of the week. I'm going to find a financial YouTube video that we can react to. And I promise that it won't always be Dave Ramsey, but today it's Dave Ramsey. So let's check it out. Promise that it won't always be Dave Ramsey, but today it's Dave Ramsey. So let's check it out. Hi, Dave. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure. What's up? I just am curious about your own personal story. When you went through bankruptcy, it seems like, if I understand correctly, you became a millionaire pretty quickly after that. Or if I'm incorrect, maybe I'm incorrect on that. But I just am wondering, how how did you do that? It just it seems so slow to pay off our mortgage. And so I'm a little bit discouraged. Like, I see all these young kids on YouTube, you know, doing all of these, I don't know, investment type things where they're built, like buying duplexes, living in half of it. You know, I forget what that's called, but Stupid. I'm just curious. It just seems so slow. Okay. <laughs> It's called house hacking. And no, it's not stupid. House hacking is probably one of the most important things that you could teach young people to do today. I think the impact of house hacking is greater than anything else that you can do when you're first starting out. And that includes college because you can get yourself in a position where you never have to worry about housing again for the rest of your life. And by not worrying about housing, you can focus on things that you really want to be doing, um, which creates new opportunities, new abilities to improve yourself. Uh, but she's right. It is slow and it probably feels extremely slow to her, but that's how it should be. Personal finance is not a get rich quick scheme. Nobody, even for uh, you know house hackers, you're not going to get rich quick. You can figure out a way to handle your cost of living or your cost of housing for a long period of time, but it's not a get rich quick scheme. It takes a lot of time to develop that equity. It takes a lot of time to build that net, uh, that net worth. And there's, there's a patience element to it. And I know that that's not fun. That's not what everybody's looking for, but that's the truth of it. What we're trying to accomplish is a good return on our money over a long period of time, a good consistent return. And what we've noticed is that a good return on a passive investment is about 8 to 10%. A great return is between 10 and 12%. And that's always going to be the case. And if you put $1,000 into something and it returns 10%, that's $1,100 the next year. It takes time for that compounding to really get going. And it's the later years where we see huge increases in that compounding. So being patient and understanding that this is a slow process is very important to building good, solid, long-term financial independence. Uh, we filed bankruptcy in 1988 and it was probably about 98 or even the year 2000, somewhere in there before we hit a million dollar net worth, I guess. I've never gone back and looked at it, but it's somewhere like that. It was not, wasn't that fast. Uh, what do you make? What's your household income? About 105,000. Okay. And, uh, how has that increased over the last 10 years? Quite a, quite a bit. I mean, okay. my husband, I think he started around 65 maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so well, you you have just your home left to pay off. Yeah, it's it's probably worth market value right around seven hundred, and we owe about ninety nine on it. But we we don't have any intention of selling it. So. So this is where Dave and I probably disagree the most when it comes to how to calculate this stuff, and what she's feeling is kind of valid. So she has like six hundred 
$600,000 in her home as equity, which is outstanding. Most people don't have that. And $600,000 is nothing to shake a stick at. But she's making the point to say, I'm not selling it, which means that once they pay that loan off, they have like $100,000 left on a loan, which is pretty low. I mean, that's awesome. They almost own their home outright. Um, But it doesn't actually do anything for them in retirement other than not having a house payment. And we've talked about this before. If you own a $100,000 house and you don't have a house payment and you own a $10 million house and you don't have a house payment, effectively, it does not matter the value of the homes because you still just don't have a house payment on either one. Unless you're willing to actually take out debt or move at some point, you can't use that equity. So she's probably thinking in her head, like, I can't use the equity of this home. Um, I mean, we're going to pay it off at some point, which is cool. But then like, then what else? Like, how do we actually live off of our retirement? You know, I can't use the equity in this house. So I feel for her. Um, she should be watching us because we'll tell her how to do that. But, you know, Dave's not going to tell them. And so, like, I, I do struggle with that. You know, you could have zero dollars in a retirement account and you could own your home outright. And if you have no intention of selling it or taking out debt against it, like, you still got to work. Like, you still got to put food on your table. You haven't solved your financial peace problem. Surely you've been saving for uh, retirement through that time, right? Yeah, we, we do the 15% in a 401k and Roth IRAs. Yeah, and how much is in there? I don't know. I haven't checked that for a while. Oh, roughly. Maybe 200, 150, 200. So maybe you're a millionaire and you just made 100 grand max? Well, I don't know about, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I mean, if, you're, if, you, did, if you have $250,000 in your 401ks and you have a $750,000 equity in your house, that's a million dollars. Um, I mean, the math isn't really adding up to that. <laughs> so she has 600K in her home equity and she has maybe $200,000. So maybe she's worth 800 grand. But again, this just highlights my point. She has about 200K worth of retirement and she's thinking, how do I spread that over a 30 year retirement? It just doesn't look right. And I understand because, you know, Dave's method doesn't really give a measuring point for success on any of this stuff. All he tells you to do is just invest. There's really no metric to tell you if you're on the right path. And the metric is your net worth excluding your house. You take that number and you figure out what 4% of that and you could safely estimate about that would be your annual income. And that's called the 4% rule or the Trinity study if you wanted to look it up. So if she's taking 200 and we could do the math on this real quick. If she's taking $200,000 and she's multiplying or she's she's taking 4% of that, that comes out to about $8,000 a year. The math doesn't work out too great, and I could see why she'd be panicking. Um, what she needs someone to do is sit her down and be like, this is, you know, where do you want to be at? And then we need to work backwards to figure out a plan to get you there. But it doesn't sound like uh, anybody's doing that for her. What do you want on okay. the other side of this? What's on the other side of paying the house off? Let's assume you've done that. What do you, what do you want? You know, I really don't know. I've kind of asked myself that question as well. I just, I think, I think I come from a long line of, on both sides of my family, elderly grandparents and great grandparents dying without, with nothing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'd like to have a better quality of life when I'm older, I guess. You're already Um, on your way in a spectacular fashion. You're you're not dying with nothing. So if you haven't seen it yet, there's a Netflix, um, show called how to be rich or how to get rich. Uh, and we highlighted it on our channel at one point. Um, and we really like it. One of the things that the host of the show does is he does something where he has the person sit down and declare what their rich life looks like. And he doesn't mean like, you know, 
a million, $10 million house or driving around a Lamborghini. What he means is like, can you put the non-tangibles down that you're thinking money will solve for you if you had enough of it? And it's things like, I don't want to have to worry about money. Um, I want to be able to travel when I'm older. Um, I want to be able to take care of my grandkids. And and she's kind of saying the same thing here. Like she wants to, she doesn't really, she hasn't sat down and figured that out yet. But, you know, she's kind of getting an idea. Like maybe I want, you know, to be safe in retirement or to not run out of money in retirement. But she should sit down and think about that. What's your actual goals? And then how do you start working to get there? How old are you and your yeah. husband? I'm 44. He's 46. Yeah. What does he do for a living? He's an electrician. Yeah, he's already increased his income. Does he work for himself now? No. No, he works for a utility company. Yeah, but he's still a young man. And, you know, he, a natural progression for him to be to, to start his own company and become a millionaire just in that business alone, plus what Dave's already laid out for you guys. I just think this is so fear-based that you yeah. haven't been able to look at your own life and your own reality and see how good you're doing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I do think they're doing well. I think they could be doing better. And I don't think they have any idea how well they're actually doing, but they are doing well. Um, and uh, Ken, I think that's his name. Ken's right. Most people in their mid to late 40s is when they start to do their own business and become successful doing their own thing. And real success starts to take off at that age. I know we see a lot of stuff where like young people are doing stuff online. Um, a lot of that is manufactured. It's not true. Um, even the whole Silicon Valley wave of uh, you know young entrepreneurs, it turns out the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones with experience. And it you know, it looks like they're in that stage now where they're making good money. I don't remember where they said they were from, but assuming it's not California, $100,000 a year is a lot of money. And they have great potential to gain more money as time goes on. And the trick is going to be how to not inflate your lifestyle as more money comes in, but instead turn around and invest that for the future. One third of the people that we studied that became millionaires did so on six-figure income or less. And that's you. Wow. That's you. Wow. Okay. So far, mm -hmm. I mean, you just now got over 100, right? Right. Just, just, just in the last year. Yeah. And so you did everything to this point that you've done on less than $100,000 a year. That's awesome. And it's super true. Like becoming a millionaire really has nothing to do with making a bunch of money. In fact, a lot of people who make a bunch of money are living paycheck to paycheck. I think the number is something like one third to a half of people making over a hundred grand a year are living paycheck to paycheck, which is crazy. And so like just the amount of money that you can invest and then compound that over time is going to be a significant impact to your wealth. So if they're putting in 15%, Maybe they could get to 20, 25%. And if that's compounding annually at a rate of like eight to 10%, you know, in the S&P 500, that's pretty average over the course of the lifetime of the S&P 500, they would be millionaires easily. Let's say that uh, your net worth grows at an average of 10% a year because you're invested in good mutual funds and real estate does well in the Seattle market, which it traditionally has done for the last 30 years. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. Seattle could screw it up and, you know, cause it to fall in on itself like some of these other cities have done. But let's just assume that Seattle continues to be a boom town. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. so if that happens, your million dollars is going to double every seven years. So you're 44 at 51. It's going to be 2 million at 58. It's going to be 4 million at 65. It's going to be 8 million. And that's if you add nothing to it. 
So this is just Dave highlighting the compounding argument that we were just talking about. At a 10% interest rate, your money doubles every seven to eight years, I believe. I think that's what he's saying here. Um, I don't think that's entirely true with real estate. You know, I, I know Seattle's been good. I don't think it's been returning 10% annually on average. I think it's probably closer to like four to six percent. Um, and then that doesn't really solve her problem of what to do with her house, right? She could be taking equity out of the house and investing that into something like a taxable brokerage account. We, you know, we argue for that here. I would do that. Um, and then her home would still appreciate. Her home would still grow at four to six percent per year. But now the money that was stuck in there, the, the equity, the wealth that was stuck in there is now also growing in the S&P 500 at 10% a year on average. You get much higher growth by doing that than what Dave's arguing for here. But he's not wrong. It's just, I, I don't see how like, you know, having $8 million in a house is going to help them if they're not going to sell it. My point is not, is that, you know, it's going to double it. If it doesn't double every seven years, it's going to double every eight years, you know? Whatever it is, it's still going to be pretty close. And that's without adding anything to it. And you're going to continue to add to it. So, you're, you know, you your chances of becoming your relative that died broke is close to zero. I mean, you're doing so good. Way to go, Allison. Go get you a mirror and pat yourself on the back. So that's the end of the video. So um, my one comment here is that um, if you're not going to do anything with your home, that's tough to count as part of your retirement net worth. And we've argued that before. The second thing I'd point out is that the, the first step in our baby steps, our version of baby steps, is to calculate your net worth and to track that over time. So she's worried that she doesn't have enough for retirement, but she doesn't actually know how much is in her accounts. She doesn't know what her net worth is. She doesn't know how to calculate how effective that net worth is going to be in retirement. And without that, what, like she has nothing to go on. She's just worrying without any data to support her worrying or her not worrying. And then that makes it impossible to have a plan. She knows she's investing, but she has no plan on where she's going, how long it will take her to get there. And without that, it becomes a real painful struggle to move forward. So our first baby step, I'm going to drive this home, is to figure out what your net worth is and to track that. And what you're doing, every baby step after that, what you're doing is trying to figure out a way to maximize that net worth number over time. And that's probably where I, I differ pretty significantly from Dave here. All right, the next segment to our show is going to be, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what to call it yet, like random financial topic. I don't know, but usually every every once in a while we come on and we talk about different financial topics as they pop into our mind. It could be like, this is how you invest. This is what I did with purchasing a car and having the most impact on my net worth when purchasing this car. Um, recently, we've been on a big kick to destroy cash value life insurance. We started with indexed universal life because that was easy. And then now we're doing whole life insurance. And one of the biggest things I get into when debating these topics is, I, I just ask, like, what's the one unique thing that whole life insurance is doing that I can't do for free? And usually their answer is, you know, kind of a jumble of ideas and different kinds of information that doesn't really apply. Um, and they'll try to throw some stuff out like, oh, it's tax free. Uh, well, I can do the same borrowing thing against a taxable brokerage account in order to pretend to be tax free like whole life pretends to be tax free. 
oh, well, you know, it uh, it's safe and it's secure. All right, well, I can, you know, they, they put in the insurance companies, they put money into bonds to make it safe and secure. Okay, well, I can go buy bonds or funds that contain bonds in order to reduce my volatility. And then I can borrow against that just like you can in a whole life insurance plan. So when you start digging down, there really isn't anything that any of these life insurance plans offer you that you can't do yourself for cheaper for free. And that's my biggest complaint. It's not that they're wrong. Their their argument is correct, but it's almost like you have a really nice car in your driveway that you own and a salesman is like, look, I've got this beater Honda over here and it runs. It works, right? You should buy this beater Honda. Why would you do that? I mean, he may be right. It may work. It may get you to from point A to point B, but you got a really nice car in your driveway already. Like, why would you pay someone for this beater Honda when you already have a nice car for free? But the final thing that people have been telling me is I have to read this book, Become Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. And they're saying that if I only read this, then I might understand. I highly doubt that that's the case. Because I've been watching, reading articles, listening to arguments, trying to find all the information around this concept of becoming your own bank, or in other words, whole life insurance. Um, and I, I I don't believe that there's going to be some nugget of truth in here that isn't like out there for everyone to see, right? But I'm going to humor him and I'm going to actually read this book and we're going to go through and review pieces of it. First off, the title, <laughs> Becoming Your Own Banker. This bothers me, and I don't know why it bothers me so much, but you cannot become your own banker. You cannot be your own bank, right? You could put your money in an insurance company, and then you could borrow against that as an asset or something like that. That doesn't magically make you your own bank. You're not doing the same things banks are doing, and you're not replacing the banking system by doing that. All you're doing is you're giving an insurance company your cash, and then they're letting you borrow against the cash that you've paid them, and that's basically it. That doesn't equate banking, right? So that drives me nuts. But he does this handy thing at the end of each chapter. So I finished chapter one and uh, he has a little review segment. And the one thing I can say about chapter one to this point is that this chapter and all the things he says in it are fairly pointless. And I don't mean pointless as in like it was a waste of time. I mean like he didn't actually get to a point. He does promise that he's going to get to a point at some point in this book. Um, so he, He's kind of setting it up, and I hope to kind of see what that looks like. But so far, I haven't seen anything that actually drives home any great concepts. The first concept he talks about is the importance of imagination when it comes to math, maybe more important than knowledge itself. Like, okay. And his argument here is like, you got to get creative when finding new financial strategies. Sure. Like, we can get on board with that. Um, I think what he's doing is he's trying to open people's minds to thinking like an insurance product could be something that you could use as a financial vehicle. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, but you know, when it comes to being creative, I think that they get to the whole life and then he just stops. He doesn't look at other vehicles that do the same thing, but better. So I think that he's not being imaginative enough. Then he talks about um, a grocery store. If you owned your own grocery store and how that would look, and his argument here is that if you owned a grocery store, you could just go in and take things off the shelf and go home, but you shouldn't. And he's right. And, and the reason he's right here is that it's hard to track when you just take something off the shelf versus if you take your cash out and purchase it, you're able to track the movement of that product better. 
when it comes to things like selling cans of beans, the margin is so small that you have to sell so many cans of beans and just taking one off the shelf dramatically impacts the bottom line of that business. And it makes it impossible for you to see the damage that you caused by just taking that off the shelf to your bottom line, which makes it hard for you to know if you have good income, if your business is working properly. So just by purchasing your own products at the grocery store, yeah, you're using the same cash. You paid yourself out from the grocery store. You're using that same cash, but it tracks it. He calls that going out the front door. And his argument here is that if you were to set up a system in which you put cash into a vehicle and then you were to take it out, instead of taking the cash out, you borrow against it because that's what you would do if you owned your own bank. If that sounds like a stretch to you, it's because it is a stretch. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong in his analogy, but then connecting that to like, so when you buy life insurance, you shouldn't take the cash out. You should borrow the cash is, is a stretch. He, he next talks about the concept of economic value added um, and the amount of interest people are paying. He, he's pointing out here, you sh if you're going to take out debt to purchase things, you should figure out a way to take out the lowest amount of debt possible. And people don't think creatively enough around interest rates. And we would agree with that concept. So the idea is this, and this was the argument that we made in a uh, episode recently, I'll link to it up above, um, about getting your own car for free. And the idea is in take, instead of taking the cash to purchase the car, you take the cash and you put it into something that returns a pretty good return. Like the S&P 500 index funds returns 10%. Then I go and I take a 2% loan out to buy the car. And the net difference is a gain of 8%. So on that money, I'm gaining 8% instead of actually paying out interest that I would have if I would have just bought the car with a loan or I would have gotten zero return at all if I would have just taken my own cash and purchased it. In fact, I probably would have taken a hit or um, I, I would have taken an opportunity cost of not gaining that interest at all because I had to remove the cash plus the taxes. Um, and we agree with that concept. Find the cheapest way to do any financial item that you're doing. Um, we argue that on this channel quite a bit. Um, then he talks about creating your own bank through an insurance company. Again, that seems like a rough analogy or rough connection. Um, and then he talks about dividend paying life insurance policy and how it works. And yes, you can get a dividend paying insurance policy. Your rate is going to be less than inflation. Um, you're going to be paying fees out during the most important compounding years, which is the early years. Uh, it doesn't make sense to do that. Uh, the argument is that, well, it replaces the savings. The problem is you need the savings in the early years when they're taking out all the fees. And then later on, as your net worth grows to the point where you could take out debt against things like, you know, index funds, that's when you need your um, emergency fund or your savings less. So it, it works backwards. It's like it's putting emphasis on the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, and then finally, he makes the argument, uh, great things take time, discipline takes years, don't expect to get rich overnight. We also agree to that, but we would say that you can get rich, right? Instead of doing this, actually put your money into something that returns something pretty good, like an index fund with the S&P 500, real estate, something to that effect, not whole value life insurance, which is returning less than inflation. Or if you just wanted to be safe, just put it into bonds like they're doing and skip the middleman altogether. It doesn't make any sense to me. So I'll keep reading the book and uh, we'll see if I land on that nugget that I'm missing to this point. I'm sure that nugget of truth is out there somewhere and I just haven't found it yet. So we'll keep you guys tuned. 
Alright, that's all we have for this week. Before you go, make sure to like and subscribe. Uh, check out WealthyIdiots.com for any new information. Check out DC's new podcast. He's doing a personal finance in 10 minutes or less. We'll link to it up above here. Um, real easy, 10-minute clips that you can find on any major podcast platform. Apple, Spotify, um, whatever. Whatever you got. So thanks again for stopping by, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>